at night, if that ever happens to you, or when you're driving to work, if that ever happens to you, where does your mind go to in those times? When your mind is free to go wherever it wants, where does it go to? What's the issue or the question that you keep coming back to in those times? If all of us shouted out an answer to that question, I think we'd come up with a wide range of things. From financial security, to human companionship, to parenting problems, to premiership titles, if you don't have anything more important to worry about. There are plenty of different things that can become the big issue for us. But if we ask the Bible that question, if we ask the Bible what the big issue is for us, the Bible has only one answer. The big issue is, how can sinful human beings be reconciled to a holy God? How can men and women thrive under God's acceptance instead of being destroyed under his wrath? Now, that may not be the big issue as far as you're concerned. It may be an issue you've never even thought about. But the Bible assures us it is the biggest issue of our lives. This is what determines our quality of life today and our quality of life 20 million years from now. Because every single one of us here will be conscious 20 million years from now. And so this is not just a big issue for us during the 70 or 80 years of this life. It's the big issue for our eternal future as well. How can we be reconciled to God? How can we thrive under God's acceptance instead of being destroyed under his wrath? Now it's not that the Bible has nothing to say about other issues, like finances and human relationships, and parenting. It has plenty to say on those things. But those are not the things at the core of the Bible. And so you and I will be frustrated by the Bible if we expect it to be as concerned about those other issues as we tend to be. The Bible will frustrate us in that case because it keeps driving us back to this issue. And this morning we come to the heart of the Bible's message. We are looking together at the book of Romans. And if we have paid attention to the first section of this letter, we will have found it unsettling. And it's supposed to be unsettling. From halfway through chapter 1 to halfway through chapter 3, Paul has been working to strip away our self-righteousness. Bit by bit, he's been peeling away the layers of our self-confidence before God, just like the layers of an onion. And Paul even told us what he was aiming at by doing that. He wanted to silence every mouth before God. He wanted to leave every single one of us with no more arguments about how good we really are. 
No more excuses for our sin. And so Paul has been relentless in giving us the bad news. All of us are under God's wrath. And by ourselves, we can't get out from under it. We stand condemned before God. And now, having worked hard to silence us, Paul gets to the good news. This morning, we begin a section of the letter where Paul is answering the question, what is the gospel? Gospel means good news. And Paul is saying, if you have been laid low with the bad news, now you're ready for the good news. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. In the church Bible, that's page 1130. Or in the large print, 1748. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And I'll read to verse 31, which is the end of chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is God's word. And in fact, these verses are the heart of God's word to the human race. This little passage is the heart of the Bible. I understand that's a very big claim, but I think it's accurate. If you and I grasp the message of these verses we will have grasped the message of the Bible. And Paul begins in this passage by explaining how sinners can be righteous. If we've been truly following Paul to this point, we will feel despair. We are condemned. 
But then into that despair comes verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. Another writer says, Paul now turns from the black cloth of human sin to hold up the glittering diamond of the gospel. And the issue Paul deals with is righteousness. So what exactly does that mean? Well, imagine you're in a courtroom. To be pronounced righteous in that situation means you are declared to be in the right with God. You are acquitted of all the charges against you. The verdict is not guilty. And in fact, it goes further than that. It doesn't just mean you escape punishment for your sin. It means you receive God's favor and blessing. So you don't just walk free from there to be left alone by God. You begin new life as God's friend. He smiles on you. He delights to call you his own. He sees you not as a guilty sinner, but as a guiltless son or daughter. You're not just a defendant who's got off the hook. It's even better than that. You're given a welcome at the king's table. That's what it means to be righteous or to have righteousness. It means to be pardoned and accepted by God. But Paul has told us in chapter 3, verse 20, that we can't earn righteousness. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So if we can't earn righteousness, how do we get it? The answer is, it comes to us from God. What Paul is saying in verse 21 is, in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, you learnt about God's own righteousness. You learnt that he is free from any guilt or any sin. The standards set out in the law are a picture of God's own perfect righteousness, his justice and his purity. The trouble is, every single one of us is a lawbreaker. So we know about God's righteousness, but we can't achieve righteousness for ourselves. But now, Paul says, something new has happened. Something new has come into the picture. God has made a way for us not only to know about his righteousness, but to receive it for ourselves. We can share God's righteousness. We can be declared as free from guilt as God is. Not by achieving that status ourselves, but by receiving it. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Go back for a moment to the courtroom. Picture yourself standing there in the dock. The verdict against you is guilty. You are unrighteous. And no work of yours can change that verdict. 
But then look across the courtroom. Over there is Jesus. The verdict passed on him is not guilty. And God says, put your faith and hope in his work. I will pronounce you righteous on the basis of his work. That's how God's righteousness comes to us, through Jesus. Now, as great as that sounds, some of us might be asking, how can God do that? Can he do that? Isn't that breaking some kind of rule of justice? Well, those are good questions. Hold on to those questions for a few moments because Paul is going to answer them. But before we hear the answer to those questions, notice what else Paul says about this offer from God. Still in verse 22, it is for all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So this offer of righteousness through faith in Jesus is for the religious and the irreligious. It's for the person who's lived a decent life and the person who's lived a rotten life. It's for the well-educated and the poorly educated, the rich and the poor. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's something we can miss very easily in verse 23. Verse 23 is telling us we are not just guilty without Christ, we're missing out on more than we can imagine. Glory is mentioned in verse 23. Glory is significance, weightiness. If something is glorious, it's solid and substantial. People talk about the glory of winning an Olympic medal, meaning it's significant. It has weight to win an Olympic medal. You didn't just win any old medal. What you've got is substantial. At the last Olympics, Mo Farah didn't run 5,000 and 10,000 meters around the local park. He ran those distances in front of an audience of millions. And he ran them against the best in the world. And he won. In sport, that is the height of glory. What he achieved is significant in sporting terms. And if we go on then to talk about God, we find that he is glorious in an ultimate way. He is substantial and significant in an ultimate way. But look what verse 23 says about us. In our unrighteous state, we fall short of the glory of God. The sense is we lack the glory of God. We don't have it. We were made in God's image. We were made to share his glory. But sin has diluted God's glory in our lives. We live watered down, insubstantial lives. We throw our lives away on trivialities. Our lack of righteousness means we're not just guilty people, 
We're people who lack the glory we were made for. We're living our lives missing out on something so much better. So being pronounced righteous by God does not only mean forgiveness, as good as that is. It also means we begin to enjoy the glory of God's presence and approval. We can begin to leave behind a diluted, watery life and begin to live a rich, substantial life in fellowship with our Maker. Later in this letter, Paul says our full experience of glory is going to be when Christ returns. But when we are declared righteous, we begin a life of ever-increasing glory. And this comes to us, verse 24, when we put our hope in Jesus and are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Don't be confused by the new word in verse 24. Justified simply means declared righteous. In Greek, it's the same word, but Righteousified doesn't really work in English. So we have justified. Paul is saying our sin is pardoned without anything in us that makes us deserve our sin being pardoned. We're declared righteous freely by God's grace. He didn't have to make us righteous. We didn't earn righteousness. We can't earn it. It comes to us because of God's free favor. And it comes through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word that was familiar to prisoners of war and slaves. Men and women in that situation were set free by redemption. Someone came and paid the price to liberate them. The point here is that Jesus paid to liberate us from the guilty verdict that was hanging over us. So when we talk about having faith in Jesus, we don't just mean having faith that he exists or even that he's God's son. Having faith in Jesus means trusting that his death paid the price to turn our guilty verdict into not guilty. You and I can be declared righteous when we stop trying to excuse our sin or pay for our sin and simply receive God's righteousness as a free gift, a gracious gift paid for by Jesus. So it's not really a free gift. It costs the death of God's Son but it comes to us freely. If we have any true sense of our sinfulness and helplessness before God, then it's wonderful to realize we can be judged on Jesus' work and not our own. That's wonderful. But it does bring us back to the question we asked earlier, how can God do that? 
Certainly no human courtroom works that way. If I am pronounced guilty in a human court, no human judge is going to let me benefit from the not guilty verdict that belongs to someone else. So we have to ask, is this amazing grace even possible? Is not God overlooking justice when he does this? Well, in verses 25 and 26, Paul explains how God paid for our righteousness and kept his own. Look at the beginning of verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. If we're going to see what's going on here, we have to get the fact that God stands in a unique situation. He's in a unique position. He is our judge, and he is also the one that we've sinned against. And this is where our courtroom illustration is inadequate, because this would never happen in a human court. If I'm on trial for doing wrong to someone, the person I have wronged is never going to be the one judging my case. But when it comes to sin, it's different. Because all sin is ultimately against God. Now other people might also be affected by it, but all sin ultimately is against God. He's the one most wronged by sin. And God is the ultimate judge of all sin. He is in a unique position. He's the one I've wronged and he's the one who passes judgment on me. The offense of sin goes all the way to the top. And the right to judge goes all the way to the top. Now as we think about this, about God as the judge and the one who's been sinned against, there are two different ways that you and I can go wrong at this point. One way to go wrong is to focus only on God's justice. And he is a just God. But if that's all we grasp about him, then we will come to see him as a harsh, hostile God. We'll assume there's no hope for us. If we only understand his justice, we will never see how we could receive anything but wrath from God. Maybe you're like that this morning. All you're able to see is your sin and God's opposition to your sin. And that is half the picture, but only half the picture. The other way to go wrong here is to focus only on God's mercy. If that's all we grasp about God, we will see him as a pushover, a big cuddly granddad up in the sky. If that's our view of God, we'll never see what the big deal is about sin. We'll never understand why God can't just forget our sin. With no consequences, no punishment. That's probably the more common view of God today. He's the anything goes God. He knows we've been naughty, but we assume he'll just shake his head and let it go. 
God is a merciful God, but his mercy is only half the picture. The Bible presents us with a whole God. The God of the Bible cannot fail to be wrathful towards sin. He cannot fail to stand in opposition to evil. If he just smiled and shook his head at evil, he wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be God. And who'd want to live in a world where in the final accounting, evil is just ignored or brushed away with a silly smile? Thank God he opposes evil. And at the same time, the God of the Bible describes himself as the compassionate and gracious God. That is the true, whole picture of God. It is in his nature to treat evil with all the seriousness it deserves. And it's in his nature to show grace and mercy. Now, with that accurate picture of God in place, let's go back to the fact that you and I have done evil against this God, and he gets to judge us. What is he going to do? How is he going to deal justly with sin and show mercy to sinners? It is in his character to do both. But how? The answer is, God, the judge of our sin, took the judgment for our sin. The one who condemns sinners took the punishment of sinners. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In verse 25, Jesus' death is described as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement is the act of dealing with sin. So that the person who sinned and the person who was sinned against can be reconciled. They can be at one. That's what atonement is. But the way God made atonement was by paying the price to satisfy his own wrath against sin. And that is called propitiation. A sacrifice of propitiation is a sacrifice that removes God's wrath. On the cross, we see God pouring out his wrath on himself. And the result of that sacrifice is atonement. We can be at one with him. Sinners can be at one with the God they sinned against Because God himself paid the price for that atonement. Atonement is the result, and propitiation is how God gets that result. It's how he punishes sin and lets sinners go free. It's how he paid for our righteousness and kept his own. Now please... Don't be put off by the technical words. Because there is a truth here that gives life to us. So let me try to illustrate this for you. I'm borrowing this from a man called Rico Tice. 
Picture this as I read it to you. He says, I once read a story about a man caught in a forest fire. He'd had a remarkable escape and was asked how he'd managed to survive. Apparently, as he saw the fire being swept toward him by the wind, he realized that the flames were moving too fast to run away from. Instead, he took some matches from his pocket and started setting fire to the area immediately downwind of him. Soon he had formed a patch of burned grass. He then stood in the middle of the burned patch, and although the fire overtook him, it could not burn the grass immediately around him, because he had already burned it. The man knew that fire cannot burn the same patch of grass twice. That helps us to see what Paul is describing here. Except that you and I didn't make that safe place for ourselves. God made it for us. The fire of God's wrath was aimed at us. But the cross is like that patch of burned grass. God the Father poured the fire first on his Son. If we run to Jesus for shelter, the fire will not touch us. It's already fallen on Jesus. Our sin was heaped on him. It was punished in him. We can go free. Now as we think about this, We must not make the mistake of driving a wedge between God the Father and God the Son. They are separate persons, but the same God. And this is where we can so easily go wrong. We can end up thinking the cross is about a loving son being punished by an angry father. But the Son and the Father share the same character. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. They both hate sin. And they both love to show mercy to sinners. The cross displays the Father and the Son's wrath against sin. And it shows the love of the Father and the Son. And if you and I grasp this truth, it will cause us to worship. It will cause us to say, what kind of God is this? Uncompromising in his holiness. And at the same time, willing to pick up the bill for my unholiness. What kind of love is this? That gave itself for me. I am the guilty one, yet I go free. And how do you and I get this freedom? How do we get this righteousness? By coming to God with empty hands and receiving his generosity.
Maybe you've wondered how God's people in the Old Testament became righteous. Well, verse 25 says they became righteous the same way you and I become righteous. Abraham's sin and Moses' sin and David's sin, that was all punished in Jesus' body on the cross. Paul says it may have looked like the sins of God's people in the Old Testament had gone unpunished. But no, in that one event, God paid for the sin of all his people. Those who trusted him before Jesus came and those who trust in him after Jesus came. And, verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just by punishing sin and at the same time, the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, where does this leave us? It leaves us with every reason to praise God. And no reason at all to boast in ourselves. Verse 27 says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. And in the final verses of this passage, Paul shows how God's work ends our boasting. Paul's point in these final verses is very simple. If the key issue here is putting our trust in God's work on the cross, then we will never, ever have reason to boast about our work. Someone has said, boasting in our own achievements is like a drowning man holding on to a fistful of hundred-pound notes and shouting, I'm okay, I've got money. If the big issue of our lives is how sinful human beings can be reconciled to a holy God, then our achievements are as irrelevant as money in the hands of a drowning man. They have nothing at all to do with the issue. The thing that is relevant is God's work on the cross. When we think of boasting, and when we use that word, I think we tend to think of self-confident people. But boasting in our achievements can be just as much a problem for people who are living in timidity and despair. The only difference is self-confident people believe they have achievements to boast about, so they feel proud. Despairing people wish they had achievements to boast about, and they're depressed because they don't. But if the key issue is God's work on the cross, then we're delivered from getting puffed up with pride and from moping around in despair. We're delivered from the roller coaster ride of feeling high if we think we've had a successful week and feeling low if we think we've had a useless week. When we have truly grasped what our standing with God is based on, then we'll say on the good and the bad days, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. 
And the cross of Jesus Christ does not shake. It doesn't stand stronger if you've had a good week, and it doesn't wobble if you've had a bad week. The cross always stands firm as your only source of righteousness. So if you're like some of the Jews of Paul's day, and you're feeling pretty confident of your goodness still, then come back to reality. Your righteousness is a gift from God. It's received by faith, not earned. And if you're like some of the Gentiles of Paul's day, feeling unsure if you belong in God's family because of your past, because of your struggles with sin, if that's your state of mind, then look up. See where your righteousness comes from. It's a gift from God, received by faith. Paul says in verse 30, There is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Law-keeping was never meant to be a way to righteousness. The law is there to show us our sin. It's there to drive us to rely on God's grace. It's there to take away our boasting. So when we run to the cross for mercy, we are upholding the law. The law forces us to trust in God's work. And maybe you need to do that this morning. I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards. Maybe you need to come back to that truth this morning. We're going to have a chance to do that as we thank God that righteousness comes from Him. And as we praise Him for His work. We're going to sing together, to God be the glory. And then, yes, finished, the Messiah dies.